Good morning, and while the guys are continuing to collect up the offering, I want to just remind of something we talked about last Sunday, a special opportunity to give. Uh, one of our missions, Ninos de Mexico, which we love very dearly, this summer, in fact, we're sending 17 people to serve at Ninos for a week. Um, we love that ministry. We love, uh, we've been there many times. We love seeing what God's doing through them. And last Sunday, Mick O'Hanahan, one of our elders who works with Ninos and for Ninos, shared a need for a home. They're purchasing a home to house more children, to enlarge the ministry there, and we want to be a part of that. Our missions team decided to give a matching donation of up to $5,000, and so we're inviting you to consider praying over and joyfully giving toward that purchase of that home. Uh, Our prayer and our goal is that we'll send a check for $10,000 total to Ninos to help purchase this home. If you'd like to hear more about the ministry of Ninos, about the home, the project, all those things, Mick is going to be speaking tonight in this room at 6 o'clock p.m. So 6 p.m., he'll be sharing about Ninos, the ministry, the home, all those things. So come, uh, hear what he has to say, and consider giving toward this special need uh, and touch the lives of children that maybe you've never met. Um, Let's consider it together. This is week three of our message, our series called Making All Things New. It's also the third message in the series. I messed that up how I said that. But it's the third one. This morning, we're talking about Genesis chapter 3. So far this year, we've spent two weeks in Genesis chapter 1 on page 1. Today, we're getting to page 2 of those blue Bibles. It's going to be a long year, all right? Page 2 took us three weeks, but we're there, all right? Uh, We're going to get through the whole Bible in about 30 years. Um, And... We'll probably skip a few pages here and there. But uh, Genesis 3, if you don't have a Bible, I want you to take the Blue Bible home. We want to give it to you today so you can read the Word of God, hold it in your hands, own it in your home, and follow it in your heart and with your life. We want that for you more than anything else. So Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be here in just a little bit. We'll read the first 15 verses of the chapter. In 2006, in 2006, my family... My wife and myself and our son was just not quite one years old, or one year old. We moved from here, this town, to Ohio to start a new ministry at a church there. The church is a little larger than we were used to. It was uh, about twice the size this church here is, and we were moving into it. And with a larger church, things happened that we didn't know about yet, um, a lot of things. Specifically, one of the things is that when you travel with students, junior high, high school students, college students, you have a lot more stuff and a lot more people to travel with. And so instead of taking a van or a couple vans on a trip like I was used to, we were taking multiple vehicles, larger vehicles, and hauling trailers with us when we would travel on trips. And when I got there, one of the first things I was asked about the trip we were going to take was this, Adam, do you know how to pull a trailer? Yes, I said. I had never, ever touched a trailer in my life. But I said, yes. I flat out lied. This is a confession. I lied. All right? I lied. I could tell you all kinds of reasons, and I'll tell you some more of the story, but bottom line is I lied because I am a liar. All right? You could go ahead and tweet that right now. Or you can wait, and hopefully it'll make more sense later. Also, we'll not make our church seem really weird to people, all right? So, I lied because I'm a liar, and truthfully, you are too. Oh, (laughs) snap. No one's going to tweet that. (laughs) Just stop it. Adam's a liar. I'm good. No, we're all liars. You know how it is. You, You get in a situation, and someone talks to you. And before you think about it, before you plan it, before you consider it, you lie. It just comes out. It just falls out sometimes. We tell my kids at home all the time, like, in the Jones family, Jones don't lie. Well, truthfully, we do. We're just a little better at managing our urge to lie than our kids are. We're liars. It's part of who we are as human beings. We're trying to pursue the perfection of Jesus Christ, but none of us are perfect yet. So I get there, and they say, Adam, do you know how to drive a trailer? I said, yes, with confidence and boldness that I did not deserve. First trip comes, and we hitch up this trailer. I had somebody else do it just because, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. And we got on the road with it, and we drove down a ways down the, down the road, 
And we pulled off to get some gas, and I pulled into a gas station. There's a gas pump right here. I pull up to it. I look out there. It says it's uh, uh, out of order. That's a problem. Because I already passed the one that was working. There's one that works, one out of order. So I think, I'm just going to drive around and hit it again. So I start to drive. Well, suddenly it backs out, stops the truck, blocks me, and I can't get past them. So I decide I'll just wait. We sit there. If you've ever been in a church van with a bunch of high school students, you can't just sit still very long. Bad things happen. They go crazy. They're animals. And so we're sitting there. I love you all. <laughs> I love you all, by the way. One of our high school students, Dawson's run the computer. Please don't mess me up today. I'm relying on you. You're the best animal. We can't sit still. One of my adults says, Adam, won't you just back up to the pump behind you? I said, that's a good idea. So I throw it in reverse. I think to myself, no clue what I'm doing. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> and I start to go back, and I hold it as tight as I can, because if you're going straight, you hold the steering wheel straight. That's what I think. Going straight. Well, if you drove a trailer, you know what happens if you don't compensate for that trailer in the back. And sure enough, I went back about 12 feet, and I managed to be looking sideways at my trailer right over here. It turned all the way around. And I was thinking, well, that's not good. <laughs> Somebody comes over and says, Adam, what's wrong? I was like, I'm sorry. I saw a child in the parking lot. I was watching that child. I don't want to run him over. I was distracted. I lied. Because I'm a liar. Because I already told him I knew how to do it. I can't tell him I don't now. I already lied. When you lie, you've got to lie again, right? That's what you've got to do to cover it up the first lie. So I get gas, and we take off. And the remainder of that trip, I made sure I never backed up. I was driving in circles the whole time. But we get back home, and it's all good. It's all good. Unload the kids, unload the stuff. I have to return the trailer because the church didn't really own the trailer. We borrowed it from somebody in the church. So I had to return it to their house. I was like, no problem. It's like midnight. I'm driving over to their house. I get there, and I pull up, and a problem I hadn't thought of occurred to me. The man does not own a circle drive. I drive in circles. Right? He doesn't want me driving in circles in the front yard probably. I don't know what to do. I can't back it up. I already proved that to myself. I can't admit it either. So I get out. It's a little box trailer. It's like 12. It's not super heavy and big. And I unhitch it, and I pick it up, and I wheel it back down his driveway and into place, and I leave it there, and I go home and rest my sore back. I had back surgery once. I mean, that's part of it. I don't know. But I get home. Next day, this guy calls me and says, Adam, thanks for bringing the trailer back. I thought I heard something. I saw I looked out the window. Did you, did you push it down the driveway? I said, well, yes, sir, I did. You know, it was late at night. And the van's got that backup beeper on it. I didn't want to disturb the neighborhood. Lie number three, because I had to cover up the first two lies. So I put it in his driveway and leave it. Now I think to myself, I'm never touching it again. Part of the job, though, I had to, so I go get it again, and, and we take off with this thing. And over the years, I mean, this went on for a couple of years. I had no clue what I was doing. No clue. I couldn't ask for help. I already lied about it. I mean, I tried to watch YouTube videos on how to back up trailers. Didn't help me, right? I could not figure this thing out. I ended up taking a, a trip with a bunch of college students down to Virginia, states away. We're driving down the road, and I missed my turn. Because I do that sometimes. I'm talking, I don't turn. You know this. So I'm driving along, and I turn around. I pull into a parking lot. There's a restaurant. I'm going to pull around the restaurant, circle around it, and leave. I start to get around. I get to the side of the thing, and there's bumpers. The parking lot's blocked off. You can't go that way. It's like, shoot. So I got to back up this thing into a highway. No clue what I'm doing. But I throw it in reverse because I'm a gamer. And so I hit, I hit the gas, and I start going back. I got in the, in the highway. I don't know if a trailer's over there somewhere, like this, again, all jackknifed up in the highway. I'm looking at it, and thinking, Jesus, just take me home. There's a truck behind me. Somebody that we knew was following us. He comes walking up. Somebody's Joe. He comes walking up. He leans on my van window. He says, Adam, seems to me you don't have a back of a trailer. I said, Joe, I do not know how to back of a trailer. Please, just, I'm going to get out. You get in. Can you fix this for me? He said, no. I think you need to learn. <laughs> Cars are backed up both directions. I'm like, oh. All right. So he walks me through it all. We get fixed. We take off down there. We get to where we're going. He's like, Adam, I'm going to teach you how to back up a trailer. But first, I need you to tell me, 
hey, you've been lying to us for years about this? I said, yes, Joe, I have. We actually, when we got home, I had an elder meeting. I got to talk about lying with our elders of the church. It was this deal, and it all started because I didn't want to admit I couldn't do something. You've done this, right? And once you, once you go down that path, you've got to just keep covering it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because when you lie, you've got to lie more. And all the lies on, in that situation and every other part of my life, every time I have ever lied... It has come out of a place of pride. Always. Adam, can you do that? Yep. Because I'm too proud to admit I can. Adam, what do you think about this? And I'll answer whatever helps me because I'm proud enough to know I, I want to get what I want to get. We do that. Now, I will tell you, I've matured beyond that point now. After 8 o'clock service, people were asking me, was that a lie in the lobby? Please don't do that. That's rough on a preacher. But, I'm a liar. You're a liar. I'm a proud person. You're a proud person. And pride will lead us to all kinds of sin. In fact, I, I believe, through reading through the Word of God and in life, just in living for a while, I think pride is the root of French every sin that I do and you do. Pride is the universal human experience it always has been. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 is all about pride coming to life within creation and pride driving us to sin. We're going to jump into Genesis 3, and I believe God is going to pinpoint in you, as he has been pinpointing in me, areas of pride, lies, sin, greed, that we need to confess and let go of so we can become more like Jesus I'm going to pray for us first, then we'll jump into the Word of God together. Father, I ask as we read these words, as we hold this book in our hands and read the words that you inspired so long ago and you have protected and carried on through time all the way to us, Father, I pray that you would speak out of them today. It's not my voice, but it's yours. It's not my will, but it's your will. It's your spirit. And Father, I pray that us in this room, as your children, would leave this place more like you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're at. Genesis 3, as you know, in Genesis 1, God created everything. We said that God created it, and then he recreated us so we could recreate his creation, his goodness all around us. The second week, We read how God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and the animals on the ground, everything in creation. And we said we want to gently shepherd everything back to the Father. Everything so far has been good and very good. In Genesis 3, if you look at the top, if you're looking at those blue Bibles, you probably see a heading right above the big three that says, the fall. The fall. For the first time in the Bible, something's going to fall and break and be messed up. But I want you to hold on all the way to the end of this message because I promise you there's a hint, a glimmer, a glimpse of hope in Genesis chapter 3. This is what it says in verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent is Satan, the devil, the enemy. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I, I want to warn you here as we go through this, that as we consider, if, if the serpent, if Satan ever whispers to you, and you engage him in conversation, that's always going to end badly for you. Because he's always going to push and twist and confuse whatever God put in your mind. He's going to push you towards something, twist something up, confuse you, try to trick you. My theory, this is, I have nothing but my theory on this, is that in Genesis 3, this might not be the first time the Satan, the serpent, has whispered to the creation. That's my theory, because I know in my life, I seldom, I seldom have 
dove into sin in a big way the first time I'm tempted. I tend to dive in after I've been tempted and tempted and justified and thought about and considered, and that's what happens. I think this might not be the first time. That's just my theory. But Satan whispers to him, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the next verse, the creation, the woman specifically, Eve, is going to engage Satan in a conversation. Bad idea, but she's going to engage him. This is what she says back. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she replies back, okay, God did say don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and don't touch it or you, might, you will die. You will certainly die. And I ask you, is that what God really said? Is that what God really said? We need to fact check Eve just a little bit. And it's easy because in the Bible, in this blue Bible, it's the column to the left. You can see it right across the page. Genesis 2, verse 16. You can see it right there. When God spoke to Adam, he said this in 2, verse 16. He said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. All right, that's, she added up, that lines up. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Eve over here, when Satan says, did he really say don't eat from it or you'll die? She says, well, God said don't eat from the tree or we'll die. True. That's true. And she says, God also said don't, don't, don't touch it or we'll die. He didn't say that. She added to what God had said. God said don't eat. She said, God said don't eat and don't touch. She added to what God said. Why would she add to what God had said? Why would she take really the only rule, the only command that God had given them, why would she take that command and add to it? I think she did it for the same reason that we do it. Because we do that all the time. We add to what God said all the time. For two reasons really. One, reason number one is we add to what God said because we don't really trust ourselves. You don't really trust yourself. We do it all the time. Uh, see if this makes sense to you. God said in his word throughout the Bible, if you look through the whole thing, God said things like this. He said, he said uh, don't be given over to drunkenness. Don't go get drunk. So we say, God said don't get drunk. And also, don't touch any alcohol of any form. That's fine to live that way, but that's not really what it said. We added to it. God said, God said, don't engage in illicit sex outside of marriage. Well, we say that, but we also then add to it, don't, don't engage in any kind of dancing, don't watch certain things that might tempt you, don't have conversations. We, we add to it, you see? We add to it. God said, don't let your language be foul. Let your language be seasoned with salt and, and useful for everything. Don't cuss. And so we are, okay, I got that. So we make a list of all the things we can't say. And we replace them with other words. Shoot, darn, crap. We replace them. I've never said that word in a sermon. <laughs> Don't tweet that pastor started preaching either, or started, started cussing while he's preaching. We do that, though. God said, and then we add to it. See, we've done it through all history. The Pharisees did this. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they took the commands that God gave, and then they added their own. God said this, and so really the people, if, if this is the rule, it will be safer if we add another layer of boundaries. So they added one. And then there's a loophole created because people always find loopholes were clever and so they make another one to cover that loophole, then another one, and then another one. And they added, people added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws to the ones that God gave. We add to it because we don't trust ourselves. And it's better to make a little safety net. Not a terrible thing to do, but that's what Eve's doing here. The, the second thing that Eve does, the reason she does it, I think, she does it because if, if we can make God's command seem really, really hard and unreasonable, 
I can justify breaking it. Even for the rules followers in the room, if, if I can justify a reason it deserves to be broken, I can break it. So God says things like this. Don't have sex outside of your marriage. Well, who does that nowadays? That's an antique, antiquated thing. I, put, I can justify it, you see? I can justify it. And if I can justify it, if it's too hard and too much to ask, I can break it. God says things, especially explicitly in the Old Testament, we should give an offering back to things. We should give 10% a tithe. It's a good place to start. Seriously, God, who does that? Who, who gives up 10% of their income? I'm barely living on 100% of my income, barely getting by. I have debts and things all over the place. How, how am I going to survive if I give 10% up? God, that's ridiculous. No one does that anymore. I can justify it. God says, God says to not be angry to the point of sin well, I can't live that way in this world we live in today. If I don't get revenge for stuff and stand up for myself and fight back against things, I'll never survive. That's ridiculous, God. I can justify breaking what God said. If it seems hard enough, I can push back. God says in the book of Hebrews, the word of God says, don't give up meeting together. We're like, every weekend? Like every Sunday I meet together? Because there's some Sundays I really want to sleep in a little bit. There's some Sundays, you know, the Chiefs play at noon, and if I go to church, I can't get home in time. That's ridiculous. If I can justify it, if I can make it seem hard enough, I can break it. And so Eve, I wonder when she's talking to the enemy, she says, well, God said don't eat it. And probably he means don't, we can't touch it even, right? Because he's, he's overbearing like that. Or will die. I think Eve is paving the way in justification in her mind for breaking the rule. She doesn't know that yet. A lot of times when you're doing that and I'm doing that, we don't know it yet. But the, the sinful side of us is already paving the way. We're already doing that. Because if we don't intentionally, intentionally pour ourselves into the, the ways of Jesus, then we will unintentionally fall into the ways of justification for sin. That's what she's doing. This is what comes next right here. Follow along with me. Uh, in verse 4, the, the enemy, the, the serpent Satan, he replies. He says, well, you won't certainly die. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what Satan does here is he's... He doesn't have to convince Eve to sin. He doesn't have to. He has to convince Eve that she's missing out on something. She's missing out on it. See, a lot of times Satan doesn't have to convince you to sin. He just has to convince you you're missing out on something and you'll convince yourself to sin by justifying it. It's too hard, right? So he says to Eve, well, you won't certainly die God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. He says, Eve, don't you understand that God is keeping things from you? Remember in John 10, Jesus is talking and he says the enemy, the thief, Satan, the serpent, the same one, he came to steal and to kill and to destroy you. But Jesus came to give us life to the full. Well, Satan's trying to convince us. That's not true. God wants to keep you from stuff. There's all kinds of fun out there you can't have. So break the rules. There's a life out there you can't, a financial life you can't possibly attain. So just break the rules. You, you can never be like him or her or do that thing. So just break the rules. God, God knows things you don't know. And he doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you do, it'll unlock your mind. If he can convince Eve that she's missing out on something, she'll justify the sin herself. If he can convince you you're missing out, then you and I will justify the sin ourselves. We'll talk ourselves into it. It's really hard anyway. No one else lives like that. It's a little unreasonable. You know, we don't live like 
This is modern days. This isn't like ancient days like in the Bible. So clearly that rule was for ancient things. And God's command is to apply today. I'll justify it. And I'll move my way into sin. Because Satan's plan has never changed. He does the same thing today that he did in the Garden of Eden. And so he convinces Eve that she's missing out. And Eve begins to do something. She begins to actively consider eating the fruit. The very next verse says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, so, so she, she abandoned the argument of don't eat it and don't touch it, and she began to, to circle and examine it. And she's looking at it from all angles. She's hanging on this tree. It, it's bright colored. It looks good. And she's looking at it, and she examines She comes up with three things. It's good for food, it looks like. It's pleasing to the eye, and it looks like it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Right? If I eat it, I become like God. So it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took it and she ate it. And she took a bite. And remember, all sin comes from a place of pride. We talk our way into it. She looks and sees that it's good for food. You see, there's a, a pride of passion. There's a pride of passion. We all have things that we're passionate about, things that we want, things that we desire, things that look good to us. Even Jesus was tempted with this. In the, in the wilderness, after he was baptized, he, he went out in the wilderness and he fasted for a long, long time. And he's hungry. If I'd been out in the wilderness fasting for this long of a time, I would be pretty passionate about getting some food in my belly. And Jesus is hungry. And Satan shows up and says, okay, Jesus, I know you're, you're probably passionate for food. If you are, why don't you just take this rock and turn it into bread and eat it? If you want it, take it. You deserve it. It's the pride of what we want. We see it all the time. I want something. I want a person. I want a thing. I want a I want. I take it because I want it. Pride. She looked and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It was something to be possessed. See, there's a pride of possession. There's a, a pride of possession that we grab a hold of and we want it. See, some of us, we view things as possessions. Some of us view, view people as possessions. We, we view we view jobs as possessions and cars and houses and money and Jesus is out in the wilderness. Satan shows up to him. And the same thing with the rock turning into bread, the same story, the same event. He says, Jesus, look out and see all the kingdoms of the world. If you want to possess all those, just bow down to me. He's appealing to the pride of possession in Jesus. We all have that. She looks and says, that looks good to my eye. I might want that. We do that. That's why right here, this right here, you want to ask why is our country, why maybe are you and your family, why are we in debt up to our eyeballs? Well, it's the pride of possession. Pride of passion. I wanted it. It looked good for me. It was pleasing to my eye. So I abandoned the consequences. I abandoned logic and reason, and I went for it. It's why we do this. The pride drives us to these things. And then she says also, it looks like it's desirable for gaining wisdom. If I eat it, I'll know good and evil. I'll be like God. There's a pride of position. It's a positional thing. If I can eat this fruit, she thinks, my position will elevate equal to God. God's keeping things from me. He knows stuff that I don't know. He experiences things I don't experience. And if I take this fruit, then I can equal him. We do it all the time. Our pride of position drives us to backstab and betray and cheat and steal when we're at work. See, our pride of passion leads us to mess up all kinds of relationships and all kinds of things. And our pride of possession leads us to end all kinds of debt and all kinds of greed and self-centeredness and coveting of things. And our pride of position leads us to try to leapfrog people and push people out of the way and put ourselves first. When Jesus said to love others like yourself, we push them out of the way and take care of me first. Jesus in the wilderness was tempted by Satan. Satan took him up on the the peak of the temple said, throw yourself off. Everyone's going to love you. Your angels will swoop down and catch you. 
It's a pride of position. And Jesus rejected all three of them. See, Jesus in the wilderness, he was showing us, he was showing us how to reject the the temptation of pride, the, the boiling up of pride in us to push it away. He was showing us what we should have seen in Genesis chapter 3. The rejection of everything that Satan was saying. But Eve, she doesn't reject it. She lets that pride overwhelm her. It comes up. She didn't plan for this moment. She didn't prepare for it. She didn't consider it. She just finds herself face-to-face having a conversation with the devil. And the pride overwhelms her. And she reaches out. And she plucks it off the tree. And she ate it. She took a bite. And then she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Eve gets a bad rap. We make jokes about this even. Maybe you made a joke before about the woman taking the thing, and, but the husband was silently standing behind her, waiting for permission to do something, hanging out. And she hands it over, and he took it, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they f- sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And they were ashamed, and you know what? Satan didn't entirely lie. Their eyes were open, and they knew good from evil. They knew the good that they had now lost, the innocence that they'd given away, the good that they had abandoned, and they now knew the evil that their pride was capable of. They did, in fact, know good and evil. They just regretted it. And they were ashamed of it. And they had guilt because of it. Isn't this what happens to us? We have a conversation with the devil. We need to tell him to go away, resist him, and he'll flee. We read that in the New Testament, but we don't all the time. Instead, we have conversations, and the longer we talk to the devil, the easier it is to justify it and to break the commands of Christ in our life and to fall to it. But when we wake up the next morning, when we sober up a little bit, when we get away from the situation, when we clear our head, what do we do? We feel ashamed. We feel guilty. We feel embarrassed. Because our pride led us into a place we didn't want to be. And we grabbed the fruit and we ate it. And now we have consequences and pain and heartache. Because we took the fruit just like Eve and just like Adam. Satan has a three-step plan. Three-step plan. To steal, to kill, and destroy you. To steal your life, to kill your hope, and destroy your future. Three-step plan. The, The first plan, the first step of Satan's plan, step number one is that he's going to turn blessings into burdens. He'll turn blessings into burdens. He did it with Adam and Eve. I mean, God created Adam and Eve in this garden to gently shepherd over all creation. He gave Adam the job of naming everything out there. The animals came to him. He named them. You're going to be a T-Rex. You're going to be a kitty. You're going to be a dog. You're better than the kitty. You're going you're gonna to be this, and you're going to be... I just revealed my bias a little bit. You're going to be an oak tree. You'll be a dandelion. You'll be a whatever. He named all the things. Then they had jobs to do. Tend and care for the garden. Watch over it. It was a blessing. In the cool of the day, we'll read in a minute that God would come and walk with them. The way it's worded, it's like he did it all the time. It was normal. It's a blessing. But see, Satan shows up, and he begins to whisper and have a conversation, and he says, are you sure? I think God's hiding some stuff. I think he's using you. I think maybe, maybe your life isn't as good as you think it is. I think maybe what you've heard isn't as true as you think it is. He turns working in the garden from a blessing to a burden. I think you're missing out. He turns trust into distrust and pushes them away from the Father, the Creator. He does it to you too. God gave you a tremendous blessing 
We live in a day and age that we can pick up a printed word of God, a Bible. We can take it anywhere we want to take it, even to school, even to work, anywhere you want. It's on your phones, for crying out loud. You can take it anywhere you want to take it. You can read it whenever you want to read it. You can hang out. It says, we know history people longed to read the word of God. When they weren't able to, because it wasn't there. And we have stacks of them in our homes. We have the Word of God. Anywhere we went, we want, we can read it wherever. But I'm just not a reader. The blessing becomes a burden. I just don't have time. Satan says, don't, you have more time. You have more fun things to do than read the Bible, right? The blessing turns into a burden. We're in this Core 52 journey right now. We've been reading the, the Word of God along with this other book, and we've been kind of exploring what God has to say to us and memorizing some verses. And I don't know about you, but I've heard some people say that memorizing is a little harder than I thought it was going to be. It's a burden. God takes the, the blessing he gives us, and Satan tries to say, no, no, it's a burden. He does other things. We get baptized. That's a blessing. God made us. In Genesis 3, the fall, it's not just Adam and Eve's fall. It's your fall. You fall. And you fall into sin. And you become a liar and a stealer. You become greedy. You, you fall. But then the father, the creator, says, I'm not done with you yet. And he's going to give us a hint in a second. But spoiler, he sends his son to rescue you, to recreate you. So when you're baptized in the water, you're lowered in there, and your, your past, your sin is forgiven, and you rise up with a new spirit in you, the spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, to take the place of the sinful nature, to take that place, you're full of the spirit of God to walk out and to share the word with everybody around you. That's a blessing. But Satan says, it's kind of weird to talk about God at work and at school and neighborhoods and stuff, so I wouldn't do that. He turns the blessing into the burden. We come out of the water of baptism, a brand new person, and then Satan says, well, but don't you remember all the things you used to do that were kind of fun? You want to do that again, right? God is limiting you. God is cutting you off from the life you really want. He turns the blessings into burdens. And if we engage that in a conversation, we'll justify it. Step one, he turns your blessing into a burden in your life. Step number two, Satan tells half-truths. Satan tells half-truths. They eventually become full-blown lies, but at first they start off just as a half-truth. He just tells it. In the garden, around the tree, he says to Eve, did God really say that? And then he says, you won't certainly die. And you know what? That was true. Because Eve took the fruit and ate it. Gave it to Adam and he ate it. And neither one of them died. It's a half truth. Now they'll die later because of their sin. Because sin causes your death. And if you live in sin, you will die because of your sin. Your sin will kill you. Not just in this body here, but for all eternity, forever. Your sin will kill you. But Satan says, you won't certainly die today. It's a half-truth. And the crazy thing is that when we, when we try it out, just try it for size, and we take the fruit, we eat it, we try it out, and we don't die. When you engage in sin, and, and you're like, well, I'll tell you what, I will, I'll do this. I'll watch this one pornographic video, and then you don't die. Like, Maybe I won't really die. I can manage this because my pride tells me I can manage it. So I continue to engage it. When you do that one thing that feeds into your addiction and you don't die, you're like, hey, I can manage this. And it just gets worse and worse. Because the thing with Satan is he tells half-truths, and he always hides the price tags. He always hides them so you can't see the price tag of what it's going to cost you. The Word of God tells you it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cause your death the wages of sin is death, but we, we hide those. I have a friend, I have a friend that I've mentioned before, his story in parts, but my friend over several years had this growing addiction to heroin and, and some drugs. And he managed it. He hit it. We didn't have any idea. I mean, he, had, he was really, really good at it. No one had, the price tags were hidden. His church didn't know. Friends didn't know. He's preaching. People didn't know. Things are going great for him. Until one day, you know what happens. Whenever we try to manage our sin, it always grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And then all of a sudden, Satan says, okay, now you, you owe the full price. And he shows the price tags. And for my friend, the price tags were these, these things. It was his wife, 
It cost him his wife. It cost him his two beautiful girls. It cost him his church. It cost him the, the music that he loved so much. It cost him his ministry. It cost him the business that he just started. He just turned over $2 million the year before, and he cost him his business. It cost him everything. Because Satan hides the price tags, and we justify ourselves a little deeper and a little deeper with Satan's half-truths, and then they come due all of a sudden. I have another friend who's a minister. He's a preacher. He's a great preacher. Great preacher. Really good at what he did. I was younger, and I looked up to this man a lot until one day we found out that he had, as a younger guy, began engaging in pornography that had become uh, some, some more involved pornography, had become strip clubs, become prostitutes. And now his wife has diseases, and it cost him his wife and his kids and his ministry and his church and his future and everything. I have another friend that was in ministry. He was a youth minister, and he heard this half-truth of Jesus, and he liked to hide some things. And long story short, he's in prison now for statutory rape with some teenagers in his youth group. It costs everything. Eventually, your sin costs everything. And you're saying, Adam, oh, whoa, those are big things. I will never engage in that. I just, all I do is lie. I'm just a liar. And I manage the lies. Some of us in this room are really good at managing the lies. We're really good at remembering who we told what to. Really good. The price tag's going to come due. Someday you're going to end up with a jackknife trailer in the road, and it's going to come due. Some of us, it'll cost you your job. Some of you, it'll cost just uh, uh, trust in our relationship, in your marriage maybe. You say, well, that's not me. That's not me at all. I don't, I don't lie. I'm not a liar. I'm, I... But I'm really angry at people. And Satan says, you won't certainly die. And you know what? Sure enough, I get really angry at somebody. And I am really good at telling people off. Some of us are proud of that, by the way. Really good at telling people off. And you know, I did it. I went for it. And there were no consequences. And so I'm going to do it again and again and again. And eventually, you know what's going to happen? It's going to cost you the relationships with the people that God told you to rescue from hell. Eventually, you're going to stand before it, before God. He's going to look at you and say, why didn't you forgive the way I forgave you? It's going to cost you your eternity. Because the wages of sin is always death. No matter what half-truth Satan's been telling you, your sin will kill you forever. Step number three of Satan's plan is that he'll tell you, he'll tell you that you can be God. He'll promise you that you can be your own God. He did it to Eve. Eat this fruit and you'll become like God. You won't listen to him anymore. You can make your own decisions. Your mind will be opened up. You'll know all good from evil. You won't need God anymore to tell you that. You can be your own God in charge of your own destiny. You can lead your own way, do your own thing. And we know that always leads to destruction. People that think they're their own God, to the extreme, we call them narcissists. It always leads to our own destruction. And we fail and we fall. Always. Satan has a three-step plan to steal, kill, and destroy you. Thankfully, luckily, there is good news in this message and the good news is that God had a one-step plan to rescue you back. It goes like this. Follow along. We're going to finish this out. 15 verses. It says now, in verse number 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Actually, I think God said, Where are you? He talks like that. Where are you? Because God, no matter what you've done, God will always pursue you. God, it seems to me, had this habit of walking in the garden in the cool of the day, talking with his people. And when they sinned, no matter what they'd done, he still shows up. God still pursues you, no matter what. It says here, the man, Adam, he answered. He says, uh, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. God says, who told you you were naked? Wasn't a problem yesterday. 
Who told you that? Have you eaten? Wait a minute. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, between you and me, God already knew this answer. But he always holds people accountable. Have you done this? Have you eaten from that tree? Because there's something about being held accountable and confessing that paves the way for us to be free from our sin. So have you eaten from that tree? Adam, as a guy, says in verse 12, well, yeah, but yeah, the woman you put here with me ate it. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's her fault. It's her fault. It's always the woman's fault. It's her fault. In fact, uh, my paraphrase is this. Adam looks at God and says, well, yeah, you see, but I don't cook. And she made it, and she put it in front of me, and I just ate it. It's not really my fault. I didn't order it. It just showed up on my table, so I ate it. It's her fault, really. He puts it off on her. Well, the, the, next, the next verse, God, God looks at the woman and says, what is this you've done? And she says, well, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, he says, I, I don't cook, you see. She made it and put it in front of me. I just ate. It's really her fault, really, probably, mostly. And she's like, well, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just got the recipe off Pinterest, and I made it. I didn't know what it was going to end up like. And I put it over here, and I gave it to It's not my fault. It's his fault. It's the devil's fault. He shared it with me. He pinned it. He made it. It's all him. Because it's what we do, right? When we're caught in our sin, it's really hard to say, I did it. It's really easy to say, well, it's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. What's their fault? Well, the devil made me do it. So we put it off. That's what we've always done from this day on. That's what they say here. And then God says this. This is the climax. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. That's to the serpent. That's to the devil. Now, interesting. You've got to note this. We're not going to read all the rest of it, but you've got to hear this. He curses Satan. He curses the tempter, the deceiver, the liar, the trickster. He curses him. And that's the only one he curses. He disciplines Adam. He disciplines Eve. You have to leave the garden. Adam, you have to work hard. You're going to sweat. It's going to be harder now. Discipline. Eve, you're going to have pain. In childbirth, there's going to be pain. It's discipline. You've got to leave the garden and make your way in the world. It's discipline. He disciplines his children, but he curses the serpent. I want you to know, no matter what you've done, God is still pursuing you. He's still right where he told you he would be. He's still waiting for you to talk to him. He's still saying, what have you done? Not because he wants to curse you, but because he wants to add discipline and love and bring you back to his way. Because we only change under discipline. That's why I discipline my kids. It's not because I'm mean. It's because I want them to be better. That's what God does. And then he gives us a hint. This is God's one-step plan. A hint of it at least. And I will put hatred, enmity, between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I believe this is just a hint, a glimpse of what's to come. I believe that in the moment that mankind fell, in the moment they were most hurt, in the moment there was the least hope, God spoke in, I'm going to curse the enemy, I'm going to discipline you, and there's a time coming. You see what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son from heaven to earth. His name will be Jesus, and he'll go to the cross. He'll be there in your place. This is the one-step plan. He'll be there in your place. He'll take your sin. The sin that your pride caused, he'll take it on himself. The lie you didn't intend, he'll take it on himself. The pain you inflicted, he'll take it on himself. And on that cross, he's going to die. And the enemy, Satan, is going to think he won. He's going to strike him in the heel and think he won. But three days later, Jesus is going to get up. He's going to walk out of the tomb. And he's going to have victory over death. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's a hint of the hope that is to come. 
Because God, I believe in all his wisdom, wants us to know that from the very beginning, he had a plan for us. He never sat back and said, what am I going to do now? He had a plan for you. It involved one step. I'm going to send my son to die and resurrect and defeat death. And then he invites us to be recreated in his image, to be made new. That is what you're invited to. If you've never followed Jesus, and maybe you identify with the pride of passion, the pride of possession, the pride of position, you identify with justifying sin, and you're saying, I struggle because I want to be better, but I just keep failing on my own, then I invite you today to see me. I'll be out in the lobby at the next steps table with some others. In just a moment when we sing, come see me, and today can be the day you follow Jesus and be made new. If you've already followed him, if you're already doing that, and you say, you know what, I keep failing in the, I keep falling over and over again in the pride in my life, and I lie, I don't mean to, but I do, and I don't know how to fix it all. I don't know. And today, I invite you to confess it. As long as you hide it, you'll never get rid of it. As long as you blame somebody else or something else, a past situation, you'll never get rid of it. The shame and the guilt that you feel, as you feel naked with the good stripped away and you recognize the evil that you've taken on yourself, you'll never get rid of it if you don't confess it. And I promise you that the Father, the Creator, is still standing where He told you He would be where he wants to meet you at. And he's saying to you, what have you done? And when you confess it to him and confess it to others around you, he is good. And he will forgive you your sins. And he'll restore you to what he made you to be. So you, even though you undergo discipline, you will mature and become more like the man the woman you were made to be. Because you are not meant to be cursed. You are not meant to fall. You are not meant to fail. You are meant to be his sons and his daughters. And so today, confess and return to the Father. Because he's waiting for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you have loved us enough that you have repeatedly called us to you. I love that you sent your son before I was even on this earth because you knew I would need him. And I love, Father, that you didn't just rescue me to sit around and, and endure the world and wait, but you rescued me so that I can live in your way, resist the devil, he'll flee from me, and I can recreate Eden all around me. But before I do that, Father, I need to be recreated by you. So I ask that you would take us back again meet us where you said you'd meet us, listen to us, hear us, and restore us. Father, we surrender everything to you, our today, our yesterday, and our tomorrow, and ask you to guide us in your spirit. And I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, let's stand, sing one last song, and while we're singing, this is the time we respond in confession or in coming and surrender. If you want to talk and pray, I'll be in the lobby right now.